This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today my guest is Dr. Samantha Jaglowski. Samantha is a hematologist here at the James. Hematology is the study of blood disorders such as leukemia and lymphoma. Samantha also leads the CAR T-cell clinical trials at the James, which is what we're going to talk about today. CAR T-cell is short for chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. And yes, this sounds very scientific and a little intimidating, but here's my quick, simple science overview of it. CAR T-cell therapy is a new way to genetically alter and supercharge the body's immune system to help it seek out and destroy the cancer cells that have figured out how to hide from it. That's pretty simple, right? But there's a lot more to CAR T-cell, and Samantha's here to fill us in. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me today. Great. I'm glad you're here. And first, before we dive into CAR T-cell, Samantha, you're not only a cancer doctor at the James, you've also been a patient at the James. Can you tell us a little bit about your cancer journey experience? Right. Um... Well, my my experience really started when I was a second-year medical student, um, and I started having trouble with double vision, and I was told that I was tired, I was studying too much, I just had eye strain, um, and so I ignored it, and I let it progress, and then um, I started residency, um, had my first daughter shortly into the second year of residency, started noticing I had headaches and neck pain all the time. Um, and I ignored it because I was a resident. I had a new baby. Um, I was stressed out. I wasn't sleeping well. It all completely made sense. Um, during my third year residency, I had a, a set of twins. By this time, I couldn't look up into the right without getting um, just profoundly dizzy, um, vertigo every time I did that, um, headaches got worse, had trouble, um, staying awake through the day by this point. Um, I thought and, I had migraines. You weren't, okay. I was going to say you weren't concerned that it was something more than just stress, but perhaps you thought it might be migraines, well, but I thought it might be migraines and this is, you know, falls into the, the fallacy of the adolescent and young adult cancer survivor. I had already had two friends and colleagues die of cancer within the past year. So there was just statistically no possible way that yeah. I, I could have something seriously wrong with me. Um, what are the odds that, that three of us in a relatively small residency class could have, you know, a f potentially fatal disease? Um, so, you know, I, I was just kind of going along, getting worse and worse. My family was incredibly worried about me by this point, but I'm, of course, not going to listen to anything they say. Um, ultimately, I mentioned it to um, a, a colleague. He was the head of the, the pain and palliative medicine program at the time, Bob Taylor, who in a previous life was a neurologist. And I described my symptoms to him. And he just looked at me like... I was crazy. He said, you need to see a neurologist and you need to have a scan of your head. So he made an appointment for me to see a neurologist within the week. I saw her. She said, could be migraines, but let's get some imaging. She ordered an MRI of my brain and neck, um, which I had on a Sunday. By Monday morning, I'm getting ready to go into work. My page goes off and it's her. And she's telling me, you need to go to the emergency room. You have a brain tumor. And of course, that's being, pretty startling news. 
it, it was pretty startling. Um, I don't know that I was processing it quite appropriately at the time. Um, the first thing I did was call one of my best friends who was a neurology resident and say, hey, does this sound right to you? And she made an appointment for me to see Rob Cavalieri that morning. Well, she actually called Rob and um, had me get in to see him that morning. Um, by, by the time I was there, he had already looked at my scans. Um, Nino Kiyoka was there waiting for me. These um, are some of the top people here at some the James. Of, some of the top people who were here at the James at the time. Um, and they, they admitted me. Uh, Dr. Kiyoka cleared his schedule the next day. I'd had imaging of my entire brain and, and spinal cord that Monday. On Tuesday, I was in the operating room. Um, and I had a, I think it was a 16 hour surgery to remove this ependymoma that was in my brain stem. Say that word again, ependymoma. And what is that? It is a tumor of the cells that make fluid that line the cavities inside the brain and spinal cord. It's a pediatric tumor. Um, After all was said and done. Pediatric? A a childhood cancer that you as a young adult had. Right. I was diagnosed when I was 28, and and they said I'd probably had it since I was 18. Um, They're slow growing. So it took a long time to get to the size it did. So that's why the symptoms gradually got right. worse and worse till they finally did this, yeah. hopefully, so, in, the, in the nick of time. So finally, finally, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. Um, so how did the surgery go? What, what happened? Because I know with brain surgery, there's a little bit of uncertainty of what happens when the patient wakes up. And I, I do know from you telling me before, you had some issues when you woke up. What, what was that like? Exactly. So this was, this was in a... a kind of a critical area of my brain, mostly um, in the brainstem. So, um, it, and, and keep in mind that I really didn't have a lot of symptoms other than headaches and some dizziness um, related to the tumor I had it in. Um, by the time I was done with my surgery, it had affected the, the nerves going to um, the muscles that control my eyes, um, the nerves going to the muscles that control my tongue, um, the muscles that control swallowing, um, my my vagus nerve. I was having trouble with um, autonomic dysregulation, so I couldn't talk. I couldn't swallow. Um, my when, mom says when you when you woke up, right, you couldn't talk or swallow. I couldn't talk or swallow or walk or um, I had really horrible double vision. I couldn't see one image unless I closed an eye. That's pretty frightening. It was kind of scary. Um, my mom said the first thing I did when I woke up was write with my finger in the palm of her hand, I'm still here. And, and I think I know, but what what did that mean? What, what were you trying to tell her? Um, you know, anytime you have brain surgery, um, I think the thing that I was most worried about was that I wouldn't be the same person. When I woke up. So you wanted to tell your mom that. It was still me. It's still me. Wow. Okay. And like you said, at the time you had three uh, daughters, pretty young. Right. My twins actually had their first birthday party in the James. And in your room. <laughs> yeah. A, a conference room down the hall from my room. That's, that's, wow. <laughs> so obviously you've, all the, the, Issues when you woke up, you've been able to, I'm assuming through therapy and determination and hard work, you've made incredible improvements. I, <clears throat> I spent 
Three weeks in the James, um, and then three weeks in Dodd Hall. Um, That's the physical therapy physical, rehab right. place. Okay. It's a phenomenal facility um, where, you know, really, I, I learned how to, to walk again. By the time I was um, discharged from Dodd, I was um, able to walk a bit on my own. I still had trouble standing up without passing out because my blood pressure would drop every time I stood up. Um, but I was on my way. Um, I was starting to swallow. I think I'd just gotten cleared for ice chips when I was allowed to go home. So you had to be get nutrition through IVs or? Um, I had a, a tube directly into my stomach. My goodness. So For, a, 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 it sounds like a little more than a month. It was more than a month. Um, I had a tracheostomy um, because I couldn't protect my airway. That was taken out just before I went home. So I had that for about six weeks. How does, and again, because uh, I'm sitting across from Samantha and she's walking, she's talking. There's just a slight little bit of a, of a speech issue, but you can, you're understandable. You're swallowing, breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how does all this kind of change you as a, as a mom, as a person, as a, as a doctor? I think I'm more patient. Um, as a doctor, um, there are a lot of things patients go through that I understand much better having gone through it. I understand fear. You know, I understand that fear makes people do and say things that they ordinarily wouldn't do or say. Um, what, what, what were your fears back then? How did you handle them? Well, I... I don't know how ever how well I ever really processed anything. I think the fears were more for the people around me who were going, you know, what if she doesn't live? What if she See, I know. feel like that's a typical uh, mom's response. The, the moms are caregivers yeah. and are always more worried about their family than themselves, which is Yeah. noble, but also, a little, I, I don't know. It's, you t- it's, I, I, I don't know either, because I think for me, it was just, okay, what do we do to get over it, this? It was, you know, there was never much poor me or, you know, this is, it's just, this is, the current state is not acceptable. How do we get to the next step? How do we get to where I'm functional for my family? I'm back to work. I'm back to research. Um, and how long did all that take, do you think? It took six months before I was able to go back to work, um, which I you know, give all the credit to, to John Bird, who was um, my clinical mentor, Christy Bloom, who was the director of the fellowship program at the time for um, rearranging things and making it so that I could come back in a little bit of a different fashion. So um, I was able to do my research portion of my fellowship first while I was still rehabbing. Um, but I was back to seeing patients 12 months after my surgery. Um, I was able to be a fellow back on the wards. Um, by then, I you know, was walking without a cane. Um, I had to have some eye surgery to correct the double vision. Um, and I was still getting speech therapy up to a year afterwards. Um, but I think being able to get back to work was one of the you know things that helped me get back to almost normal as quickly as I could. Yeah, that that was quite an ordeal you went through. So, knock. I'm knocking on wood that you've made it, and 
it's it's ten years, right? It's is, ten it, years. Is, when's your ten year anniversary? Uh, or, July first. That's the date of your mm-hmm. operation. Yep. Or, so, oh wow, that's that's not long from now. So, I'm going to give you an early congratulations on your happy. 10 year do you have a name for it some i've heard people call it like their cancerversary or their I, second I, birthday I, or, I don't <laughs> um we we refer to the tumor as the thing in my head but, oh so yeah, it's it 10 years a, since a the name. wow the thing in your head I, I i was gonna say i like that but that's not something you like it's something okay. i like the name not the mm-hmm. the thing that was in your head so thank you for sharing the story of your cancer journey with it. It's it's really inspiring and amazing that you have just come back. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Samantha. And then we're going to talk about uh, uh, current treatments for blood cancers and then how CAR T-cell therapy is really moving the um, needle forward a lot. We'll be right back. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Samantha. And we're going to start talking about CAR T-cell therapy now. But first, I think we need to know a little bit about the current standard treatments for uh, blood cancer, such as lymphoma, and that, that'll that lead us into what you're now working on developing. So fill us in on what, what, how are people treated now and how does it work? The current standard for a patient who would come in to us with an aggressive lymphoma is combination chemotherapy. We give a combination of four drugs six cycles, we're able to put about two-thirds of patients into a durable, meaning five-year or longer remission. That's great. Which is great, yeah. but that leaves us with one-third of those patients um, who don't get into a durable remission. And if you would take 100 patients with relapsed or refractory lymphoma, um, the standard of care for those patients is to do salvage chemotherapy. And if their cancer is responsive to that chemotherapy to take them to an oncologous stem cell transplant. And that's using that patient's own stem cells. Right, where we give a high dose of chemotherapy and then rescue their bone marrow with that. Putting their back own their own stem, stem cells. cells. Okay. Right. Um, which is, you know, great. Up to 50% of patients can have, um, can, will be in remission three years after we do this. But the problem is, only 50% of patients respond to chemotherapy well enough to go to the autologous transplant. So out of our 100 patients with relapsed or refractory lymphoma, we're down to only 50 of those patients um, will we'll get into a good enough remission to go to transplant. Okay. So we've got our other 50 you know, in this bucket that you know, we don't have a great standard for. Of those 50 patients who got to transplant, um, about half of those patients will be in remission um, three years down the road. So 25 patients will be in remission. And about 25 um, of those patients, 50% of those patients, will relapse after transplant. So we got this other group of patients who, you know, we don't have a real great standard for. So we've got our 75 patients 
of relapsed refractory patients who didn't have a good enough response to get to an autologous, autologous transplant or relapsed afterwards, um, they were going, okay, well, what do we do what for do them? We do for yeah. them? If we can give them a different kind of chemotherapy and get them into a good enough remission, they can go on to an allogeneic transplant. Allogeneic is a donor. A donor. Okay. So this is a brother or a sister or someone off the registry or, or now even mom or dad or, or adult children can be a donor. So um, so we, it's not an exact match, but it's good enough, it's hopefully. It's good, good enough. We have, okay. we have got 10 markers we look at, and if we can match with those 10 markers or we can do something called haploidentical or half match, we can find a donor for just about everyone now. The downside of the donor transplant, so again, you know, this is, this is now where instead of relying entirely on chemotherapy, we're harnessing um, the donor immune system to recognize the lymphoma as something that's bad and not supposed to be there. For, it's a foreign right. body. It's a foreign and, body. Yeah. yeah. But okay. the problem is the recipient is also a foreign body to this new immune system. So we introduce this new immune system, and it recognizes the host as something that's bad and not supposed to be there. And we call that graft-versus-host disease. So the body, the immune system is fighting the body. Right, right. Yeah. It's um, almost like the opposite of a solid organ transplant, where you think of if you put a new liver into someone and that person's immune system rejects the liver. This is where the new immune system is rejecting the host. Which is all throughout, all throughout the body. Blood. Yeah. It, yeah, all throughout wow. the body. And okay. this happens to about 50% of our patients. And these are pretty bad side effects, right? Yeah, it can it can run the gamut anywhere from annoying to fatal. Um, and in patients, you know, we, we treat everything with steroids in the cancer world. Um, this is no exception. But for patients who don't respond to treatment with steroids, outcomes are, are fairly dismal. So this is, you know, something... We in the transplant community would much rather not deal with. So, so you have this subset of the of these patients who, for all the reasons you just said, it's not these treatments aren't working. There's really no, there hasn't really been any other option until now with the CAR T cell therapy. Right, right. Okay. So we've got this, you know, fairly large bucket of relapsed refractory patients who at some point are going to need something so different of, or better than a transplant. Out of those 100 patients, how many are going to... Out of these 100 patients, we're, we're down to, you know, we've taken out 50 who can't get to transplant. We've taken out another 25 who who relapse after transplant. Um, and... and out of out of those, we can maybe get twenty six percent to respond to next line chemotherapy. So there was a fairly large study looking at people who um, failed two lines of therapy or relapsed after a transplant. So this is our seventy five patient bucket we've got, and only twenty six percent of those patients responded to whatever the next line of chemotherapy was, and the average survival was six months. Okay, so, so at this point, we've got 75% of, of that 75 patients who can't respond to whatever in order to get to the donor transplant. Okay, so that's where possibly the CAR T-cell. Right. So, so, so what is it? So what this is, is you know, with, the, with the, the autologous or the transplant from the cell, if we take out someone's stem cells, what we do with the, the CAR T 
cells is we take out someone's lymphocytes, um, white cells, um, with kind of the same process, but instead of freezing them, we ship them off to. So wait, uh, you take someone's blood out right, of their out we, of their arm or, or right. and and separate out the white cells. Separate out the white cells. You, um, and it, with the uh, what's it called the. You know, it, it's um, centrifuge. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so if it's okay, so you have you've collected a, a patient's white cells, right? Got and it. then okay. we've, we've taken these, we've separated out the the T lymphocytes specifically. Oh, that's where the T is for, okay. Yeah, that's where the T comes from. Okay, and we've shipped them off to a facility in California or New Jersey. They co-incubate these cells with a deactivated HIV virus. And this works its way in, into the the DNA of the cells, basically, to teach them how to recognize, in this case, CD19, which is a marker that sits on the surface of lymphoma cells. So CD19 is a marker that's on all these lymphoma all cells. All the lymphoma cells. And you're teaching, you're teaching these uh, white cells to recognize it. Right. Okay. Right. And they, they expand these amazing. cells. Okay. And it's pretty cool. Um, and, and two and a half to four weeks, depending on what, what process they're using to expand these cells, we get back a, a little vial of frozen cells. Um, and a very big container. Um, Oh, because they've got to stay yeah, frozen. Yeah, because they've got to okay. stay frozen. So the, the shipping is kind of a big deal. Um, but we get back these little cells in a big container. Um, and then at that point, we, we bring the patient in. We give them a relatively mild chemotherapy because the entire job of the chemo is just to suppress their immune system a little bit so they don't kick the cells out and to make some space for these lymphocytes to come into and expand. So they get three days of chemotherapy. Um, they get a couple of days off. And then we bring them into the hospital. We infuse these cells. It's, you know, so you thought you thought we them, thaw them out, and they stay alive through this. Obviously, yeah, they stay alive, yeah. but they okay. They, they stay alive. Not only do they stay alive, but when we infuse them into the patient, they expand. They expand rapidly, and then they and that's a good thing. In and this that's case. a good thing. Okay. Um, although it's got a downside, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but they expand, and then they go to the tumor. Um, oh, okay. and they recognize the tumor and they, they fight the tumor. Um, we've had patients who've gotten to say they can feel the, the lymph nodes, the, the tumors get smaller within hours of getting these cells. It's really fairly remarkable. That is within hours. Within so, hours. So these, is it millions or billions of cells? Millions of cells. Millions and millions of cells yeah. attach themselves to the CD19. Was that it? Mm-hmm. And yeah, they recognize the CD19 and they kill anything that expresses it. How do they kill it? Do Pro- they, probably the best way to say it is they um, they eat it. They Okay. They, they eat it and they recruit friends to eat it. Okay. That, that um, wasn't too technical. I got that. Okay. So it's almost like a video game. Right. Right. It, it, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like Pac-Man. Yeah. I, that's what I was thinking yeah. when the way you said that. Okay. So, and then what happens to the, with the patients? And then, um, I guess this is where the downside of the expansion comes in. And the reason why we do this in the hospital is when the cells expand, they release the same chemicals that your body releases when you have the flu. Oh, okay. Um, and so... You know, for most people, um, 
you get fevers and you get body aches and maybe your heart rate gets a little bit high and you, you don't feel good at all and you want to stay in bed. For some people, this can be a really severe reaction um, where they need medications to keep their blood pressure high enough. They need um, help breathing. Um, so we've certainly had patients who have to go to the intensive care unit um, to help get them through the side effects. All these things will go away. All these away. things will go away. We okay. just need to support patients through it. But, you know, from from our end, um, it's kind of scary. From the family's end, it's certainly scary because you've never seen this before and you don't know if it's going to get better. Um, but it does. You know, it always gets better, which is really interesting. As opposed to graft versus host, which, graph may versus not host which may not. Yeah. So once once we get someone, you know, four weeks after getting the cells, they may tell us they're a little bit tired. But really, there's not a lot of long-term side effects with these things. So after a couple of weeks, uh, the, the tumors have shrunk and the symptoms have gone away. Is this work with everyone? No. Um, okay. It doesn't. But... It does a whole lot better than 26%. Um, the, the, <clears throat> in the three major trials, the three multi-center trials that have been reported out, um, response rates have ranged from high 60% up to about 80%. But the thing that's consistent across all the trials is that the remission rate at six months after getting the cells is typically close to 40%. And this is really important um, because in the, the longer reports of patients who are on the clinical trials, we have close to two-year data on some of the earliest reported trials. No one who is in a complete remission at six months after getting the cells has relapsed. Which is obviously great news, That meaning the long-term prognosis seems to be good. Working. Right. Yeah, so if you get through those... Six months and not having a relapse, it, it could last it, at least two years or more. At least two years. Yeah, and and we don't, how long, we yeah. don't know. This, this guy's kind of the limit. Um, now, where are you in the process? I know there's been, obviously, you just mentioned, and I know you run the clinical trials here. Mm -hmm. Well, where are you and, and the whole cancer world in terms of approving these uh, treatments and and for what cancers? Right now, there is an approved product from this company called Kite. The product is Yescarta for patients with um, yes. relapse or refractory. Yescarta. Yescarta. Okay. Um, they're all crazy names. Um, for patients with relapse or refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma. There's also a product called Kimraya. And this is for patients with... Um, with acute lymphoblastic lymphoma or leukemia, I'm sorry. Um, and this is for people who are up to age 25. Oh, for, okay. Right. So for two cancers, and when you say the process is approved, it's not specifically a drug, right? Because this is the process of taking the blood out, shipping it to the lab, genetically altering it with these this uh, mm -hmm. deactivated HIV virus, and then putting it back in the person. For insurance intents and purposes, um, and for FDA approval, it's been approved as a drug. But okay. we call it a living drug, because if I give someone a drug, I can tell them, you know, pharmacokinetics, I can tell them, you know, you're going to have these side effects, and this is what you expect. This is a living drug. We put it into a patient's body, and right. it does its thing. Um and and we can give them guidance as to what to expect. 
Okay, so these two two drugs slash treatments have mm-hmm. been approved for these two types of uh, blood cancer. Right. Are are more in the works? There are. Um, we we expect a third approval um, later in 2018. There will be the second approval for diffuse large B cell lymphoma. There are studies ongoing, um, including studies at Ohio State for patients with follicular lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, other CD20 expressing lymphomas. Um, we'll we'll hopefully have studies in acute leukemia coming soon. Um, and what's really exciting is that we're also using this, this concept, the engineered cell concept, um, for patients with solid tumors. Oh, okay. So you're making the jump from not just blood cancers, solid tumors, breast cancer, lung cancer, and so on. We have studies open right now for patients with synovial sarcoma, um, and non-small cell lung cancer, as well as cervical cancer. Um, and there are, are studies. Um, studies are clinical trials? Right. Okay. Right. And then clinical trials are coming for um, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, um, anything that has a target. Um, this is, you know, potentially something we can we can use for it. So now you mentioned in some of the lymphoma um, cancers, this CD19 is the target. Are some of these new clinical trials targeting a different target for lymphoma season 19 is kind of the target we're going for um for multiple myeloma for example um we're we're close to have a study opening targeting this this antigen called um bcma um and that stands for b-cell maturation antigen so that's a whole new target that's a a whole whole new target um that um the the studies for Lung and sarcoma and ovarian or cervical cancer all have different different targets. Um, so it the, sounds like it's almost in some ways the sky's the limit that as the research improves, you can target more and more and maybe mo- most, if not all, cancers potentially. Um, that, which is amazing. Yeah, this is this is something that's really cool to be involved with because you can almost feel, you know. Uh, the whole paradigm shift thing sounds kind of cliche, but you can almost feel a shift in how we do things. Where this this concept of CAR T cell, where you use the patient's own immune system, re-engineer it, put it back into the person's blood or into the tumor, mm-hmm. that's the future. Yeah, where we, we, we manipulate the immune system instead of, you know, give people toxins to try to get rid yeah, of cancer. Instead of, yes, po- instead of poisoning. Right. The, okay. So looking into your crystal ball, five or 10 years or however long you think, what's going to be the big picture of how this type of treatment, this CAR T-cell concept will be applied in the future for people? Will will this be the treatment or one of... I think it'll be one of treatments. I see this as being one of the pillars of cancer care, just like radiation oncology or surgical oncology. Um, with with BMT, bone marrow, blood marrow transplant right now, we're sort of a, a niche service for hematology. Um, and I, I see this expanding to where you know we can become a service for all of oncology. Um or we can can provide some of the cellular therapy expertise to, um, you know, people with um, breast cancer or, or GI cancers or brain tumors. Um, 
really a- anything that's got a, an antigen we can target. An antigen means a, a, a marker. A, a marker. Yeah. Okay. So that distinguishes this as cancer. Right. So for you, as 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 we've discussed, as a, a cancer survivor, as a cancer researcher, as a doctor, what what does this mean? I, like this must be pretty exciting. This is this is really exciting. Um, and I, I think the the best part is you you can offer people who who thought they had no hope you can offer hope so it's great to see people you know 2 years later completely living normal healthy lives as if we've done nothing to them and through the clinical trials that you ran here at the James that has happened yes and you get to see these people <laughs> yeah so if someone come in like a year after or I don't know if you're up to a year yet, but however long We've after. We've got two people with um, two year, who, who are two years after their treatment, and it's like we did nothing um, in a good way, you know. It, it's, you mean like there's nothing wrong with like them? Like there's anymore. nothing wrong with them. That's amazing. So, and, and to bring this full circle back to what we began our discussion with, research uh, is what's curing cancer. It helped in your case. It's helping in your patient's case and patients all over the James and beyond, and you're at the cutting edge of this. Yeah, and it's, it's just incredibly exciting to be able to offer these treatments to patients. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing your own personal story, and thanks for filling us in on CAR T-cell therapy, which we'll follow, and it just seems to have tremendous uh, good uh, gains in the future. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Great. And this podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.